and today we have as a guest uh, the principal of Ruvento Ventures, um, Alexander Piskunov. Uh, and let's get it started. Alexander, why don't you kick off by telling us a little bit about Ruventus, since not everyone here have heard of it, and we'll get of course, uh, of course, sure. Thanks, Constantine. Uh, by the way, guys, can you hear me well? Just yeah. Um, just okay, perfect. great. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, great to be here today. It's very interesting that most of you are sort of in a different time zone to each other and someone has just came out of the pool, someone is eating. I've, I'm just having an early morning at the moment. So uh, let's get started. So um, let me just give you a quick introduction as to what do we at Provento do and what kind of things we believe in investing. So initially we were started as an accelerator back in 2014 in Singapore and for a couple of years we've been investing in quite a large range of startups mainly in Southeast Asia in the hardware sector and we've been using all the time to sort of grow our network amongst corporates and other VC players and uh, get a few very well-known startups into our portfolio and this has allowed us to launch a much bigger VC fund in 2016 to open up an office in San Francisco in the US and to diversify our focus much more globally. So at the moment, we look at three main segments. Firstly, it's artificial intelligence. Secondly, it's robotics. And thirdly, it's automotive mobility. And even though we mainly look at the US in terms of our geographical market, we also consider European, Russian and Israeli startups as well. And even though these three segments are quite large, so for example, automotive mobility looks at things like car sharing, sensors, electric cars and whatnot. We as a VC fund, we mainly look at the more technological startups such as for example as I mentioned the sensors like lighters or radars or cameras while things like car sharing are in my personal opinion more suitable towards um, private equity funds just because at earlier stages you cannot really distinguish one startup in this category from another because normally there is no um, very distinct technological advantage that one has over another while you normally distinguish them through their geographical presence and their customer base, which is only relevant once a startup grows up a bit and gets equity investors invest and they get revenues mainly through the dividend share model. So in terms of our portfolio, uh, I'd say that it's very broad. We have around 18 portfolio companies in total at the moment. And for example, one of them is called Boom Supersonic. And what they do is they manufacture supersonic jets. So something that Concord used to do quite a while ago, while another is called Mighty Buildings, and they have a technology for the 3D printing of buildings. And yet another one has a navigation system for autonomous cars and drones. And we also have smart mattresses, mirrors for um, IoT, satellites, and whatnot. So as I mentioned, our portfolio is really broad. And we as an investor, as Constantine mentioned, we look at quite a wide range of stages. So from seed stage all the way to Series B. 
And around a month ago, we've also begun to look at Russian startups and to help them to scale up to major accelerators in the area, such as, for example, the Y Combinator, and then to progress onto the American and Asian markets using our network of contracts and so investors in those spaces. So at the moment, we've already made around four investments in Russian startups, and I hope that a few of you could also be good for us in that sense, in that uh, I've already spoken to quite a few and I believe that your ideas are really interesting. So we can potentially get a dialogue going early uh, on after the conclusion of this call. But I guess at this stage, this very brief introduction is over into our fund. So I guess it would make sense for us to sort of get onto the topics that Constantine outlined initially. And in this particular instance, I'm just curious as to what kind of you guys be primarily interested in, in terms of me elaborating out of those topics that me and Constantine initially outlined. So I'd like to sort of hear an opinion or two, and then we can begin with that. Yeah, so first topic to discuss initially was, uh, since many of us here have Let's see, so not huge networks uh, connected to the investors and mm -hmm. to the investor community. One of the questions would be how to reach an investor if you don't have such a network. So if well, someone wants to discuss something else, let us know through a chat or um, just under okay. your help. Sure, let me just start with that and then we can move on. So, well, I guess to be honest with you, even though you can do something like code mailing or whatnot, it's not really effective. So even though you might want to reach an investor without a network it's not going to be very effective so the best thing you can do is actually get this network right and i guess i can elaborate as to how i would go about as a first-time entrepreneur without really a great understanding of the geography and the industry that i plan to develop my startup in so i guess really it depends on your prior background right so if you for example previously worked at a large corporation, then you can reach out to your former colleagues to see whether there are some initiatives uh, to do with earlier stage investment or startup incubators, accelerators and whatnot. Because for example, in Russia, I know that over the past year or so, there has been a really significant boom in corporate accelerators. So for example, those were particularly prominent in telecoms, technology, and in the oil and gas sector, because there is an initiative by the Russian government to sort of encourage the major corporations to innovate, to catch up to the Western competitors. So everyone and their dog is sort of trying to initiate a program or two, even though I guess they don't really believe in it succeeding. They don't want to get left behind and they want to show off to the government officials that yes, we are really innovative. So what you can do if you have a corporate background is sort of touch base once again with your colleagues and to ask them to put you in touch with such accelerators because to be honest, that's all they do, right? So they handle a wide range of um, wide range of requests from potential startups and if you had a background in this corporation it can really set you apart 
and you know whom to approach and you know what kind of things they might prioritize when they select a startup to be featured in that accelerator. But uh, stepping back a bit, I guess, really, if you want to do a startup in financial technology and you previously worked at, let's say, Gazprom, right? So a major oil and gas company, it's not going to be very helpful for you. So if you are a smart startup founder, you really want to pick the smart money. So the money which really will set you apart and let you run the greatest lengths with the money that you're given because normally you get given quite a small chunk of the money and the most value that you can get is through the connections that an accelerator or business angel or a VC fund can do whether it's through access to potential future investors whether it's access to potential clients or it's help with expanding to foreign markets which is particularly relevant for russian startup founders because the local market is quite small so normally the smart founders start to look abroad at the very foundation once they prove their initial hypothesis so other than reaching through the immediate framework uh, in the immediate network you can also i guess target the friends family and fools right so the very very first early round and this round, I guess, is helpful for you because you don't really need to convince these people uh, to invest in your startup because they know you very well. You live with them. And as a result, they will be much more malleable when it comes to sort of putting very small money into your business. However, it can also become a disadvantage if you fail as a startup, all right, because it can put a strain on your personal relationship as well, because they will keep asking for money and it can really make some family dinners quite awkward, I guess. But yeah, I mean, another thing you can do other than reaching out through your immediate framework, immediate network is by, by uh, for example, some social media posts or publications Welcome let's say you chat. previously were a successful what? scientist or uh, sorry sorry anyway so yeah i mean try and get a social media presence going post on forbes post on um linkedin have a very good developed linkedin profile because to be honest if I, as an investor, don't really know you as a startup founder personally, and I cannot uh, get a mutual introduction through some other investors. I try and look you up on LinkedIn, and if it shows your background is something that you did perhaps 10 years ago, it's not very helpful, and it can put me off uh, from really and dialogue going with you. So even if I would have potentially loved to invest in your idea, it can be uh, very detrimental if you do not uh, try and present yourself. Yeah. Um, another thing I would say is that even if you don't have any network, it would really pay to use your contacts in corporate or startup world, which you've gained by going to a few initial conferences or approaching a few funds which you just didn't really know whether or not they'll be helpful and you found out they were not helpful and they were not really specializing once again on your own field of work but 
once again, the value of an investor is not what he knows, it's whom he knows, right? So normally a very good investor would know other funds which invest in other spaces. So you can ask for a mutual introduction. If he liked your project, if he liked you as a person, I guess you'll be much more happier to make those introductions to the relevant people. And even though these initial introductions might not be very helpful because you don't really know how to approach investors initially, right? You only develop your hypothesis, you're only building your deck. It would still give you valuable feedback. And eventually, after a few meetings or a dozen meetings or a hundred meetings, you'll hit the sweet spot uh, of an investor that you like, that likes you, and you sort of get the dialogue going and it can lead to an investment initially. So yeah, that's how I would advise to reach out to investors, even if you don't have a network. I guess another thing which you guys as startup founders might be really interested in is how you should structure your pitch deck, right? And I guess in this particular instance, I would firstly say that there is, there is really no Goldilocks or no golden formula when it comes to structuring a pitch deck because there are as many people as there are opinions. But to be honest with you, the main purpose of a pitch deck is not to cover everything, not to answer every question. It's only to hit the first few key areas to answer the key questions, to interest an investor, to arrange a face-to-face -face meeting where he'll be able to see you as a person, where he'll be able to learn more about your vision and where you can actually start discussing the money, right? So I guess in this particular instance, I would describe those few things which I would advise a startup founder to look at when he wants to get a very well-rounded pitch deck going, right? So. I wouldn't really advise you to have too many slides. I guess um, around 11 or 12 slides would do because otherwise you would try to put too much text on or put too much emphasis on the things which are not really relevant and it would divert investors attention and eventually he'll just give up on life and give up on trying to invest in your idea, which is not I guess what you want him to do, right? So I would begin in the very first slide with a very succinct description of what your startup sets out to do. Maybe it's just a sentence or two and show your company's logo and show your company's name. And for those few of you which have gone through Y Combinator, there is one of the one of the key questions he asks like describe your startups in 50 characters or less so i guess this is about the same and some startups do answer this particular question by saying like we are an uber for something right we are on netflix or something so trying to associate themselves with a very well-known unicorn and i guess this could work but in this manner you don't really showcase yourself as very unique. And it, it really pays to showcase yourself as unique. 
because an investor wants to know how exactly you're different in the, from the rest of the competitors and from the market in general. And while you can elaborate on this particular point later on in the deck, it still pays to do so very early on. So yeah, in the next slide, I would begin by describing the uh, key issues which are faced by the customer in the target segment which you're trying to enter. So the key pains, and I would explain how exactly uh, are those pains addressed today by your competitors and why those means are ineffective, right? So once again, I would not really go into much detail as to what exactly your competitors try to do and how your solution is different from theirs. But I would just say what exactly are the wrong points? What exactly did they not manage to cover? What um, the, the customer wants? Right, because it will show that there is a gap in the market and then later on you can address it in much more detail as to how exactly you're planning to close that gap. Right, so in the next slide, I will describe in detail how your particular platform or service or product tries to fix the problem that the customer has and why exactly your solution is unique and in comparison to the first slide, I would go into much more detail in terms of the uniqueness of your solution. And I would go into a bit of a tangent saying how exactly you came up with this idea. Because as a startup founder, you're not only trying to sell your product and your financials, but you're also trying to sell your vision, right? And for an investor, it's very important to know how exactly you not only came up with it, but how exactly you hope for it to progress later on. And that's something that we would also address in the next few slides. And also what you can do if you have some space, you can also explain how do you plan to protect your solution against your competitors. So be it intellectual protection, be it uh, first move advantage or relationships with major players in the space. So it really stands you apart once again from the competition and it can help you to model your product later on once some potential entrance or unexpected events happen and they always do so it's helpful and another slide which i will talk about is the exact features of your product or service such as the functionality what uh, form does it have? So, for example, is it a robotic um, device which serves you pizza, robotic device which, I don't know, cleans dog poop or does something else, or it's a marketplace which tries to reach out specific clients uh, across specific geographies of a specific demographic, right? So you would aim to distinguish your client base because it's very important for an investor to know that you've done some market research and you know whom exactly you're trying to approach and how much is he willing to pay, right? So if in this particular point, if you have a workable prototype or at least a demo, I guess it would make much sense to showcase it in a video format or if you don't have it yet, just as a screenshot perhaps, because one thing is talking about it, one thing is reading about it, but if you can visualize it, it's very helpful, right? So I guess 
at a latest flight, I would also uh, talk. Sorry, about sorry, Alexander. I'll have to interrupt sure. you here. We can't go over the whole page deck of eleven slides because uh, we're uh, limited by time okay. a little bit. So I would okay. much rather ask you another question about uh, the presentation. Okay, great. Uh, many of us here know what to do, but someone still doesn't know what not to do. So, for example, is it appropriate to make some funny joke or to put some picture, you know, of a, in your slideshow of a unicorn flying in there? Something like well, that. Is that something you To need? be honest, to be honest, I guess it really depends on your product, right? If you are trying to sell some uh, fun marketplace, I don't know, or a product that is catering to children, that may be appropriate, right? Because it sort of showcases that you're engaging with the audience, but it it's much more helpful if you've um, already managed to build up some kind of rapport with an investor or whomever is trying to read your deck, because otherwise he may think that you're not serious. And even though um, he wants to know about your vision, he wants to know about you as a person, at the end, it's mainly about the financials, right? So he wants to know how exactly are you going to pay him his money back and how much is he going to receive at the end? So yes, it may be appropriate, but I wouldn't really bank on that. So don't do that. And another thing that I would advise you to do is try to avoid any kind of technical jargon, right? Because even though as a smart founder, you aim to approach uh, the right investors, some of them might not be having, I don't know, PhDs in biomedical science. Some of them might be associates who are only a few years on the job. And uh, once again, they might more much more interested about the financials, about your team, about the market. And they would understand it far better if you um, talk to them as you would talk like to a teenager, right? So avoid the technical jargon. And once again, if you avoid some cliches in your presentation, I don't know, like the slide about the market, headline the market, or the slide about your team, headline the team, and instead you will talk exactly about how what the market is and what exactly makes your team unique, it will be much more helpful. So avoid cliches. That's another um, thing that I would advise you to do, right? And Moving on to different parts, or once again, as you mentioned, as we are running out of time, I would we're, like to speak about. Yeah, we're not running out of time yet. I just didn't want to go over all eleven slides. Okay, sure. By well, the way, I yeah, to thanks for thanks for keeping the hand on the pulse. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, sure, sure. sure. So let's talk about how the U.S. Um, startups and the venture capital environment is different from the Russian one, as I guess most of you or some of you have background in Russia, so it's quite interesting for you and some of you is a pain, right? So firstly, I'd like to say that one of the major differences is the focus on different kind of industries and trends which are hot, right? So in Russia, at the moment, the things that are trending both in terms of the startups, which try and put new ideas onto the market and the funds which um, enter the market and make the first few landmark deals are uh, in the spaces of artificial intelligence, in marketplaces, um, whether they sell um, merchandise for dogs, whether they sell robots, whether they sell anything technical, it does not matter. The market at the moment is not very developed, so there are a few existing entrants 
and there is much um, there is a lot of space for innovation on the market so many new startups try and make the mark so other than ai marketplaces i'd say that another thing that is trending is um cyber security right because historically uh the russian tech scene has been very good in terms of programmers in terms of hackers in terms of it specialists so even though there are already established players like for example kaspersky lab it does not mean that there is not much scope for the innovation on this market once again so um startups form in russia they capture the um, commonwealth of independent states market and then they go abroad because um, the solution for the russian markets is much similar to the solution in africa or the us even though it may differ to the scope of, of, of um, cyber attacks even though it may differ to the frequency of cyber attacks in essence it's much the same right so for those kinds of startup founders it's much easier to validate their hypothesis and that's why they are uh, quite a bit more successful right so while in the us those things that are trending are much more consumer oriented for example um, cannabis right uh, or any kind of vice tech it's very popular uh, we as a vc fund we don't believe in it we try to stay clear of it like the plague that is blockchain or cryptocurrency but uh, notwithstanding there are vc funds which spring up like mushrooms catering to specifically the cannabis industry because it's hot there is much innovation in the space and the consumer demand is booming right so there is um demand for vc investment as well and other than cannabis i'd say that there is much demand for um financial technology for food technology and this scope in itself is very broad from meatless burgers to robots that make pizza to special blends of kombucha and whatnot and yeah so the first key point in terms of us versus russian ventures is i've mentioned other trends and sort of the segments um in which many startups try to make their mark and another thing that i would like to mention is the sort of the infrastructure and the greater risk in russia for the investors themselves when they try to look at earlier stages right because in Russia, there are many crazy founders. They're very good teams in terms of technological backgrounds, but um, most of the ideas that we as VCs who occasionally consider Russian investments uh, often get pitched are um, insane. Like, for example, I don't know, um, a platform uh, for VR content where you as a client can put on VR glasses and look at uh, pornography where the faces of your friends and relatives are put into the faces of pornographic actors, right? So you put on the glasses and uh, immediately sprung into action, um, which you can discuss later at the dining table, right? Other things include, I don't know, um, quantum, teleportation devices in your backpack or um, 
nuclear reactors um, in your watch or something. So something which you really, as an investor, you may think it's cool, but you know it's not going to sell because it's just such a uh, crazy idea. And we don't have an Elon Musk uh, on the Russian market yet, so there is no one to fund such things. And so it's very risky for the VC funds who try to look for Russian startups. So many established VC funds, they try to look abroad. Um, for example, Runa Capital or I2BF or Almaz or a few others, which sort of already made their markets landmark deals. They established offices in London, in San Francisco, in Berlin, in Singapore, in Hong Kong. And they look for startups here just because they don't believe um, I guess that the political situation, the financial situation and the startups themselves on the Russian markets have something to offer in terms of the long-term return for the VC funds. And this works both ways because the Russian VC founders, they understand that even though there is a lot of money on the Russian market, most of it is associated with government funds or um, business angels who made their money in Russian corporations and they don't want to approach those kinds of money because it can raise eyebrows and become potentially toxic when it comes to raising follow-on rounds from uh, top-tier investors in London, in Berlin, in Silicon Valley and whatnot. So those startup founders who are smart, they try to relocate their headquarters abroad as soon as possible. Even if they cannot go to Silicon Valley, they try to establish headquarters in Amsterdam. And they do so even though an R&D team or most of their team or clients of theirs can remain in Russia. Just so their public facing persona is sort of Western oriented, right? So it's a very bad thing, I guess, for the development in the long term of the Russian startup economy because it showcases a brain drain where not only the smart programmers go to work in corporations like Google, but also the startup founders and the VC founders themselves, they don't really believe in the Russian economy, which is a shame. And also what is problematic is a lack of systematic government support, right? Because there are very helpful initiatives such as for example the um, in, uh, internet initiative development fund which is called free in russian or skolkovo which have very great budgets and they offer incentives in terms of tax incentives in terms of talking to potential investors incentives in terms of uh, approaching potential foreign clients it's very unorganized it's very unregulated and there is no understanding between the different players who have government money and who try to help startups as to how to arrange the funnel from the very early stage to the potential IPO, right? So sometimes the greatest startups, and uh, I'll be honest with you, the Russian market has many smart minds. It has great startups who later on um, scored very big on the foreign international markets. Uh, they just moved over from the Russian market just because they didn't, they didn't know how to grow 
uh, in the long term in the local market. They didn't have enough support from the public and private players, so they decided to move on. And another thing, when it comes to potential um, VC funds, it is that there is not much opportunity for investment from LPs, right? So the limited partners who give the VC funds their money. And once again, it comes from two major sources, right? It's either um, the toxic, uh, potentially toxic, I mean, money from uh, government or uh, government-oriented investors or corporations, which is not very valued by Western startups. And it's a lack of uh, such investors, like for example, the endowment funds or pension funds, which are very big investors in VC funds in the US or in France or in the UK. These funds are absent on the Russian market. So uh, it's very difficult for VCs to raise follow-on rounds or follow-on funds and to attract sufficient smart money which can help their startups to expand internationally and to get enough early on cloud to later on establish a sufficient exit for the VC to showcase a significant return to their LPs, right? So the main problems are firstly the differences in trends, the lack of support from the government and um, other sources in the um, Russian startup ecosystem when it comes to comparing it to the US, uh, as well as different sources and difficulty in attracting LP investment. I guess this will be the main things if you want to keep it brief. Okay, let's see what other things a, that we have. We've yeah. got a question from the audience. Uh, okay. asking, how do you keep up with the, with the progress in niches uh, in which you invest? Well, it really depends on the stage that you've invested in, right? Because, well, there is a big difference, right? So if you invest in Russian startups as a Russian VC or a Russian corporate uh, as a Russian accelerator, there is not much access to financing so you try and get as much equity as possible and it's a problem it's a problem for a startup founder because he, he has a very little incentive to develop his business because he gives a great chunk of equity early on so he becomes very detached and disengaged from the process of growing a startup and he is not very motivated to um, showcase to investors that he made significant progress when it comes to, once again, arranging new contracts or entering new markets or validating the hypothesis. Uh, while in the US, uh, it's a tradition that at earlier stage investments, you normally give away maybe about five to 10% of your equity at most. And even though you don't really as an investor, get as much opportunity to influence whatever is going on at the startup. You get an opportunity to get feedback from him as to once again, what's going on with the startup, um, what new milestones have been achieved, whether or not he has um, 
went through any accelerator programs, but really the extent to which a startup founder is willing to engage with an investor in terms of uh, showcasing potential traction depends on the personal relationship that they have built. So um, once again, as I've mentioned, um, as a VC, your true value is whom you know, right? And it pays to establish uh, good relationships early on, even though, even if you might be a VC fund who invests in series uh, B and beyond, you might have some scouts or programs which track startups from seed stage or from series A uh, so that you can get a relationship going and then you can invest in them once they grow up to your size. So other things that you can do is you can talk to your contacts that you normally approach for your due diligence, be it university professors, be it other VC funds who look into similar trends or startups as you to sort of give you feedback as to how their portfolio companies are doing, even though they might not want to give you the exact details because uh, they are once again, your friends, but also your competitors. They, you can exchange with them the broad um, scope of the trends as well as the recent M&A activity. And then you can use that information to sort of understand better how exactly your own company is doing in that context to answer your question. I hope that's helpful. Okay. That sounds good. Uh, does anyone else has any So questions? yeah, uh, let me uh, move on and yeah, yeah. I guess yeah, yeah. Let's finish if anyone has questions, questions, if anyone has questions, I'd be more than happy to dedicate, dedicate 10 minutes to start because we're just moving on to our last point, right? So I guess there are other things yeah, that I wanted to cover is I do such as used to evaluate startups. And I guess the main thing that I would like to mention is that um, the major difference between the early stage investors and the later stage investors is that those investors who target C and Series A are mainly interested in their qualitative factors other than the financials, right? Because there are um, not many opportunities for an early stage startup to develop enough um, of a reputation on the market, enough of a revenue, enough of a client portfolio to be able to showcase significant financials. And even though he might showcase some kind of forecast, we all know that the longer a forecast is made in advance, the less accurate it is. So earlier stage investors look at it, but they don't pay as much attention as they do to such things as, for example, the market itself. So when we look at the market, we look at um, its overall size, and then we consider what's the total addressable market, what's um, the time, sum, and sum, right? As you know, guys. And then we consider the global scope and the scope of a country which the startup uh, tries to capture at its initial stage of um, operation, such as, for example, the Russian market or the US market. And we also try and understand the competitive advantage of a startup. This mainly comes from the technological features of the of the product or service, as well as the funding amount and the strength of the team and other things, right? So it's very important to know that even though 
the startup itself, which you're trying to evaluate, might not have very good technological features at the moment. Its team is great, like it has many PhDs. Its founder has a significant track record when it comes to selling and launching startups in this particular space before. He has a very good network. He has a few co-founders who are strong in their own areas. For example, the CTO and the CMO. And they, as a founding team, worked quite a long time together. They know each other since college. They've been through ups and downs together. It's always very important because um, an investor understands that each startup, like any kind of person, has its own um, areas which it cannot influence. Like, for example, there is a downturn in the market. So it's very important to understand how the founding team or solo founder would react to this kind of problems and whether or not he'll be able to come out on top. And actually mentioning solo founders, I guess, it can be quite a red flag when it comes to judging the team composition because a solo founder doesn't have as much uh, time accum uh, in terms of cumulative, right, than a few people. He cannot cover all kinds of areas because his background, ideally, is in a specific industry and he cannot juggle as many balls um, like using the allegory of an acrobat in a circus right less meat but uh, the trend is going away from meatless meat towards um, sugarless sugar something right or something a anyway so if a trend is moving away then I might be quite hesitant to invest in this particular startup. And I will also consider the dynamics of the existing round. So who exactly is planning to participate, whether the investors of the previous round are agreeing to sort of maintain their prorata investment to the current round. And I would also consider such financials as, for example, the unit economics and the burn rate. So the burn rate is how much a startup's team spends to uh, keep up uh, keep up its employees keep paying the money um, and this burn rate figure is normally given on a per month basis while unit economics are mainly applicable to earlier stage startups because once again there is not much point in discussing their financials and instead you can uh, try and measure the effectiveness of their business on a sale by sale basis um, by uh, looking at a specific customer or a specific product sale individually, right? So, for example, two key metrics in terms of unit economics an investor would look at are uh, uh, customer acquisition cost and lifetime value, right? So, customer acquisition cost is how much a startup spends in terms of, for example, advertising revenue to acquire a specific customer while a lifetime value is the amount of money which a specific client would give to a startup uh, through the whole duration of using its platform or product or service. And then you can extrapolate those unit economics to give you a better financial understanding of how a startup um, would hope to grow at a later stage. And you can use some kind of um, tools like, for example, the Kaufman decision metric analysis 
where you will assign uh, specific weights to points like, I don't know, the team, its vision or the market or its technology and whatnot. And then you would try to compare them together and arrive at a specific figure, which you can then evaluate against the other competitors in the market to see whether or not the valuation of this particular startup that you're trying to invest in is justified or not. Uh, but they are all very subjective. And to be honest with you, um, all uh, valuations and analysis that an earlier stage investor do are very subjective because, once again, there is not much financials to back um, your approach. So it's the effectiveness of your analysis depends on your prior background, depends on your ability to do accurate diligence and your ability to uh, talk to other startups in the space or to people who have been really uh, doing those kinds of industrial investments or backgrounds before to give you an informed opinion. Yeah, I guess in this particular point, I'm pretty much done. We've covered all the key bases. So let me just open up the floor to the questions from the audience. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so thank you for your speech, Alexander. Uh, you basically I've uh, updated my uh, LinkedIn profile after your speech. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, so my question is about uh, what you said that you have uh, you are investing in the several uh, on the early stage or, or later. So uh, how does your fund or you personally uh, are looking on uh, in the investments for? Uh, as a syndicate or as, as several uh, sev several uh, independent investors uh, during the one round of investors. Invest. Uh, sorry, can you please clarify? So, I what do you, the what question you is, mean? How yeah. much do you like to invest with someone? So, uh, is that okay? Right? Sure. Well, I guess at earlier stages, uh, and once again, we're an early stage investor. Most investments that are done are done through a syndicate. Why? Well, because it pays greatly uh, both for a startup founder and the investor to diversify the investment portfolio. Why does it pay uh, for the startup founder, right? Because you can get access to expertise and potential contacts from a wide range of investors. While for an investor, it's a diversification of risk. It's once again the outsourcing of due diligence. And it's a building of relationships, which you can later use to make future deals. So we as an investor, we like to uh, follow on deals. We like to engage in syndicates and our own um, smart money that we give is um, rotating around our connections with major tier one VCs in Silicon Valley when it comes to arranging follow rounds. It comes from the partners' um, backgrounds in the automotive space, in the AI space, um, which can sort of help um, them to give appropriate introductions um, in those spaces to the founders that we're trying to bug, as well as to our connections and history in Southeast Asia, 
to major corporations in Singapore, in South Korea, in Japan, and in a few other countries in the region. When it comes to arranging pilots, when it comes to helping startups to expand into those spaces, which is always very helpful because uh, even though Russian or European startups, they primarily consider the American market, the American market is very competitive and it's um, very difficult to uh, develop and push a product which hasn't been done before. So some people, they try to get initial traction on the Asian markets and some markets, um, like for example, the Chinese one are very opaque and they're very big. So if you're able to get your foot in the door on them, it can really pay off in the longer run. To answer your question, yes. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Any more questions from the audience? Any more questions, guys? Uh, yes, hi guys. Hi, Alexander. Hi. Yeah, my name is Andrew. And hi, Andrew. Um, yeah, so we we build basically the platform for kids carpooling, and mm -hmm. I think we can talk about this a little bit later. But my question sure. is, you ask uh, the startups about the patent and how they protect themselves, and what about the DNA form? Do you sign up with startups, and how do you work in your uh, company with this? And my second question is about the LinkedIn what kind of information we have to put there just uh information about the company about my company on my own profile or is just general about like my, what i'm thinking about the uh, entrepreneur and so on and so on and share okay. my experience because i never use linkedin and like when we start doing our startups i realized this how this is important but i still yet have no idea what i have to Food there. Okay, thanks a lot, Andrew. By the way, I think you mean not DNA but NDA, right? So it's non disclosure agreement when you were yeah, uh, speaking yeah, about it. Right. And yeah, uh, just a bit of a warning to you guys as on the startup founders. Um, yes, it's traditional to sign NDAs, and yes, they are valued and respected by the VC community, but sometimes it's very difficult to uh, keep everything uh, confidential, right? So why is that? Because when you talk amongst other VCs or amongst um, experts in the due diligence process, sometimes uh, some things might get um, slipped uh, by the tongue or some things just need to get revealed in order to give an advanced understanding of the subject to give an informed opinion. So, um, it's, it's necessary to do NDAs, but it's also necessary to understand for you that really sometimes they're not really respected, let's say. Sorry to repeat myself. I'm, I'm just saying uh, that for some kinds of segments, especially um, technology-driven ones, rather than, for example, marketplaces or something like meatless meat, they make much more sense. While um, in other cases, you would only be expected as a startup founder to ask to sign an NDA um, to a VC if you are at a later stage, so you don't want to reveal your financials. To answer your second question, well, uh, firstly, LinkedIn is important, but 
you also need to maintain your online presence on other platforms. So for example, I don't know, AngelList or Crunchbase or Facebook, right? It sounds like a hustle and it is at the very early stage because you waste the time to, I don't know, tell the world how your product is doing, how you are progressing instead of actually developing the product. But it's really helpful because it helps you to get initial introductions. It helps you to get um, to know the VCs if you don't have a network. And when you talk about your LinkedIn, uh, I'd say that you need to keep a fine balance between promoting yourself and promoting your product and being professional, right? So when you talk about your prior backgrounds, what you need to include is, for example, uh, once again, uh, your education, right? So your uh, technical background, uh, whether you have a PhD or not, it's very important. If it's a well-known university, it's very good. It's a plus for a VC who is doing due diligence. If it's a major corporation, please uh, say which exactly was the unit that you worked in, what you were responsible here for, because if you worked in Uber in the autonomous cars division and now you have an autonomous car startup, it's a very big plus for the VC that uh, you are trying to woo. Um, so please put a lot of detail, but don't um, use jargon. Don't use self-promoting words like, I don't know, evangelist or uh, dreamer or I want to change the world with my new product because um, as an investor, we've heard these phrases like a million times and all it, all it gives is a, just a smirk rather than a serious reaction and you don't want to have this reaction from a VC. Yeah, I guess okay. that's it. Yeah, yeah okay. thank you. No problem, Sandra. Let's talk later. That was a great addition about not putting a dreamer or something like that too. Even I as not an investor see this every single day and it's yeah. it's awful. Yeah. All right. Um it's been an hour. Does anyone have any other questions that you really want to ask? I'm happy to stay on uh for ten minutes or so. Yeah, we can extend a little bit yeah. if you have any more questions. Yes, no, yes, no. One, okay. I don't know two. how many people are even here. Uh um like 12 or so online um all right if uh, no more questions then we'll wrap up and uh, okay. thank you all for coming thanks alexander for presenting uh there was yeah. a lot of really thanks interesting information and yeah i have a question alexander can we connect with you do you have time right now to speak maybe about yeah minutes, uh, can, can you drop my message and yeah. talk privately okay um, okay. Yeah, if you mind, I can uh, leave Alexander's uh, profile on OpenLand here in the chat okay. so you can contact Please him. do. All right, cool. Please do. Mm -hmm. Okay, done. Um, all right, thanks for, for coming. Thanks, Alexander, for presenting. Uh, mm -hmm. Next Saturday, Founders Radio, same time, same day, same day. So see you all there and have a great weekend, guys. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.